For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. This year, NASA's oldest operating planetary missions, Voyagers 1 and 2, celebrated their 45th anniversary since launch. These venerable solar system explorers have trudged on through the inner and outer solar system and off into the interstellar yonder, beaming back data from billions of kilometers away. Operating these vehicles is not just a marketing gimmick, though. They continue to participate in groundbreaking science as pioneer interstellar explorers, giving us our first glimpse at the mysterious outer reaches of our solar system. I wanted to learn more about what these two robots are up to, and so I called someone very special who has been working on and off with these missions since their launch. Linda Spilker was there for every flyby, and today has returned to the team to continue the Voyager mission and joins me today to teach us a little bit more about what they're up to. All right, so we're here with Dr. Linda Spilker. Linda, welcome to We Martians. Oh, I'm very, very happy to be here. Just really wonderful to be here. Yeah, and I'm so excited to talk to you because, uh, you know, you've had a very impressive career and you've done all sorts of uh, amazing things in the planetary science world. And, uh, you know, this year for me has all been about uh, learning a little bit about planets that aren't Mars. I'm kind of a Mars guy. And so I'm stepping out into uh, the rest of the solar system. And so as soon as I did that, I knew I had to talk to you at some point. So I'm very excited about today. So thanks for, for coming. Oh, you're very welcome, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so before we start about Voyager today. We're going to talk about Voyager. I wanted to just learn a little bit about you. Um, you know, like I said, I won't make you go over your entire career, um, but if, if for someone who doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about Linda and, and what you've uh, worked on as a scientist. Okay. Okay. I'll go back just a little bit and tell you why I'm so enthusiastic about space and especially Voyager. And it turns out it's the time I was growing up. That was when we first had men walking on the moon and I knew I wanted to do something with space. And so I got a little telescope when I was in third grade, and I used it to look at the moon and at Jupiter and Saturn, and I was just hooked. I liked following their little moons as they went around and really, really thought that was very exciting. And, and I also loved math and science in school, so I took a lot of math and science classes. And after I graduated, I applied to JPL. After I graduated from college, I applied to JPL, and they hired me, and they said, well, what do you want to work on? There's this Viking extended mission, you know, on Mars, or this new mission that hasn't even launched yet called Voyager. And so I said, well, where's Voyager going? I haven't heard of the Voyager mission. And they said, well, Jupiter and Saturn, and if all goes well, Voyager 2 will go on to Uranus and Neptune. And I couldn't help but remember back to those days looking at the planets, and I said, sign me up. I want to work on Voyager. I want to <laughs> explore the outer planets. And so that's how I got my start on Voyager, worked there for basically 13 years through all of the flybys through the launch. I got to go to the Cape and see the launch. What a great way to start out, you know, for a, a 
person fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. And then all four of the flybys, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And I worked with the uh, infrared team on their science. I was sort of the science interface between JPL and the science team at Goddard. And so that was, I really enjoyed that. And also worked with another team, the photopolarimeter team, uh, and looking at stellar occultations of the rings of Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And it turns out that Voyager data became what I used for my PhD thesis. And so I went back to UCLA, got my thesis using ring data, and it was just so fascinating. And uh, when Voyager ended, there was this opportunity for yet another mission, a new mission called Cassini. And Cassini was going to go back to Saturn and orbit Saturn for at least four years. And what a wonderful follow-up to what I'd been working on for my career. And so then I went off and I spent the next pretty much 30 years working on Cassini from the where it first started as an idea through the mission and spacecraft, everything being built, the instruments being built. I also worked with the infrared team on Cassini, this time as a co-investigator on rings and really got to delve into that and ultimately became project scientist on Cassini. And so Cassini ended in 2017, plunged into Saturn that ended the Cassini mission. And then it was time to look around for, you know, what else would my next steps be? And along came this opportunity to work once again on Voyager. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. Kind of come full circle (laughs) with my career. I go back to Voyager and I'd been keeping track of Voyager along the way because, you know, it was my first mission and kind of in a sense, just really loved working with that team. And so now I'm back on Voyager and uh, now instead of planets, it's interstellar space Mm -hmm. outside that bubble that that is created by the sun really exploring now the space between the stars. And so tremendously exciting. I'm just very excited to be back and working with the scientists, many of whom also worked on Cassini and then kept kept their Voyager uh, roles as well. So it's uh, a little bit like a homecoming, coming <laughs> back to people I know and, and uh, friends and, and a mission I really love. It's pretty cool to be able to bookend the career that that way, right? Like to, to have, you know, a little bit of Voyager at the beginning and a little bit of Voyager at the end. That's pretty, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully maybe a Voyager will last a long time, a lot longer even. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> so on that note, tell us how the spacecraft are doing. I mean, I think everyone knows that, that they're, these are spacecraft that have been traveling for uh, a long time and have gone very far uh, out there into the, the solar system, into the universe. Um, but they're both still operating, which is just like remarkable to me. So maybe give us a little bit of uh, uh, information about how's the spacecraft health and, and, you know, what are they even up to these days? Yep. Yep. Both, both Voyager spacecraft are still operating and still healthy and collecting data on the magnetic field in interstellar space, uh, the particles and plasma there, cosmic rays, and also any of the, the radio waves. It turns out that the sun's influence goes through the heliopause, that boundary for the heliosphere, out into interstellar space, and, and Voyager can pick that up and, and really uh, look at it and understand it. In fact, just to give you an idea, Voyager 1 is at 158 AU, where one astronomical unit or AU is the distance between uh, the sun and the earth. So 158 times further from the sun than the earth is. And Voyager That's 2 wild. is at about 132 <laughs> AU. I mean, it's just it's just mind boggling to think. And yet, if you look at the great 
you know, our galaxy that's really just a very tiny step away yeah. from our sun. And, and, and another way to look at it is it takes to communicate with Voyager 1 at the speed of light, that's a, the radio waves travel, it takes 22 hours just for a signal <laughs> to go from the Earth out to Voyager 1. And that's almost a light day. Yeah, thinking in those terms. And so then it takes another 22 hours for Voyager 1 to send a signal back to us. And so conversations with both Voyagers are rather leisurely. You have to be patient. Uh, you aren't, you know, communicating and, and in real time making decisions for the spacecraft. You have to program the onboard computers and get them then to execute the, the commands that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that in the, in the universe, that's a small number, 158 AU, but like even at a solar system level, that's very, very large. Cause I think what Jupiter is roughly five AU, I think Saturn's 13 or something like that. And these are yeah, Saturn's, planets, Saturn's so. 10, you know, 10, you, you, 10, sorry. And yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you know, so relative to the solar system, the, the planets themselves, it's much further away uh, than yeah. the planets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there was recently, uh, some, a uh, funky issue with one of the attitude control systems on Voyager, uh, Voyager one, I think is one that, that had it, um, as it was sort of my prompt for having this conversation. I I wanted to have a conversation about Voyager anyway, so I'm using this as an excuse, but, um, we had some, some weird readings coming back from Voyager one. Could you tell us a bit about sort of some of the problems it had and how they were overcome? Yeah, well, Voyager 1, uh, just sort of out of the blue, all of a sudden, the engineering data it was sending back about the attitude control system became garbled. Mm -hmm. uh, we couldn't make any sense of it. And that those are the data we used to try and understand how well Voyager 1 is working. And, and uh, so we were really puzzled. But with some really clever detective work, we actually got back a retiree who'd worked on Voyager in the early days. <laughs> and uh, he figured out that uh, if we tried to send a certain command, that maybe inadvertently Voyager 1 had gone over to the wrong side of the flight data system computer, it was on side B, and side B had wasn't working very well anymore. And so we'd been on side A for a long time. And so he suggested send a command, go back to side A in the FDS and see what happens. So we sent the command and all of a sudden the attitude control engineering data started to flow again. Uh, but during this whole time, while we were trying to figure it out, it turned out Voyager was operating flawlessly, still <laughs> pointing the high-gain antenna at the Earth, still sending science data back every day. We, we just couldn't see into what that system was doing and how healthy it was. So it's back operating and working. We're now looking for what they call the root cause or what started the whole thing, because obviously we don't want this to happen again if we can avoid it. And so we're still in the process of trying to figure out exactly what might have happened, because if we can, maybe we can find a way, a workaround to make sure that it's less likely to happen again. So back working and healthy and uh, sending back science data, although the science data never stopped coming down, everything uh, just looked great. <laughs> I imagine out there in the weird radiation environment beyond the the heliopause and stuff, there, there must be a, some sort of chance that, you know, bizarre radiation pings can flip bits on the computer and things like that. I imagine that that could be one of the possible uh, issues that it had come up. Hey, Yeah, they call it a, a single event upset where mm, maybe okay. you get a cosmic ray that hits, you know, in a certain place and causes an upset 
within the computers. Uh, once the Voyagers left across the heliopause, then the uh, cosmic ray abundance went up quite a bit. You can think mm. of that as the radiation in space. And so that radiation is bombarding both of the Voyager spacecraft and could potentially cause damage. So you're absolutely right that, Jake, that's one possibility. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so it's, it's funny you mentioned, so bringing in a retiree, because this is a, a question that I kind of have. I, I'm, I'm a really big geek about operations, just the way that people organize themselves to solve interesting problems. And um, it occurs to me that one huge challenge with Voyager is sort of maintaining that operational expertise because the technology is stuck in time and, you know, the late 70s and everything else on Earth is moving past it. Right. So I'm imagining it's it's. You know, it's the code on the computer, it's the computer hardware itself, it's the radio frequencies it uses, it's the dishes that hear those, it's like everything along the path is going to have you know, interesting challenges. And the only thing you can really do to solve that is have people who know what, what you're going to do with it. So how do you, how do you tackle that operationally? Like, is, is, it, is it as simple as just br keeping all these retirees on call and, and, and paying, them, paying them when there's issues? Or is there <laughs> other things that we can do to kind of uh, keep these things running and keep ourselves running with them? Yeah, well, a lot of the flight team that's still operating Voyager have worked on Voyager for decades. So we have a lot of experience and I have a lot of things, of course, written down. You, know, you want to be sure and capture that knowledge. Uh, in fact, we went back and scanned some old Voyager documents because those are in the days before you could put all these files on the computers. So we literally <laughs> had to scan the information in and create PDF files. And then, of course, uh, something very key for Voyager is a list of the retiree phone numbers and emails <laughs> so that we can go back as needed and consult these experts, you know, some of whom, you know, maybe program the attitude control system or, or, or programmed parts of the computer and, and use their expertise. And, and now the challenge is really the succession planning. You want to bring in new people and train them and get them so that they can go on and carry on commanding Voyager, you know, into the future. It's possible that we could maybe make it out to 200 AU in the, maybe in the 2030s at some point. And so uh, the retirees are going to be coming, uh, you know, a lot more of those than the, the flight team. And so you want to make sure to train in a sense, the next generation. And that's true both on the engineering side and on the science side that we've brought in a lot of uh, guest investigators, young scientists to come in and train them in how to process and look at the Voyager data. And these people are great. They have a lot of models they can bring in that are new. You know, maybe they've worked on it uh, for their thesis. Uh, in fact, uh, one uh, graduate student actually came up with a way to process the, the plasma wave science and actually found that by processing it very carefully, could find a very, very faint signal that was essentially for Voyager 1, giving us a measure of the, the density of the plasma in interstellar space um, all of the time. In the past, we had to wait for one of these shocks to come from the sun. You know, a big event on the sun could then propagate out, cross the heliopause into interstellar space. And, and the way it decayed and what went on with it, it would tell us about the plasma density. Uh, but now with this new technique from a, 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 you know, a young graduate student, we now have a way, a different way to look at the Voyager data. And so we're really encouraging that to look at it with fresh eyes, new eyes, new ideas, and, uh, you know, get the most that as we can out of that data and work with the scientists to understand you know, the subtleties of the calibration or any mm -hmm. of those other things. Yeah, I know like spacecraft instruments 
they tend to, you know, develop like a little bit of a character, you know. So as, as someone who works with like, you know, a single instrument for a long time, you start to kind of learn. It's it's like idiosyncrasies, like, you know, like all the different. Uh, oh, this. Oh, yeah. The data does this sometimes when this happens and you can you can start to like learn. They're like personalities. Right. And so I imagine the ones all the stuff on Voyager must have. There's just so much extensive data available that there must be this sort of character to them that all these retirees and and stuff are able to try and pass on and that seems to me like the hard part to document right because you can you can write this is what this code means and this is what this code means but how do you how do you convey like oh this one gets finicky when i don't know when the radiation gets like this or something like that right <laughs> right yeah yeah it can be a challenge and what we did on cassini is we actually put together what we called user guides hmm. and a user guide was a step-by-step cookbook of how to take the data out of the planetary data system in some cases, you had to run a piece of software in the planetary data system to calibrate the data. And then if you followed each step, you'd end up with a plot that looks like this in, in physical, you know, real physical units. And so in the same way that the Voyager scientists are trying to pass on these ideas of here's what you need to do to get something that shows you in, in real physical units uh, what the data looks like. So let's talk about some of these data then. Um, you know, so they're both both these spacecraft are returning data right now, which is just incredible. Uh, what are you using this data for now? Like, I mean, I, I know not all the instruments are operating, but like, what what sort of operational capability does Voyager still provide? Yeah. Well, first, a little bit about the background of where where are Voyager one and two right now? And it turns out that after Voyager one had its flyby of Saturn, it went very close to Saturn's moon Titan. And that made it go up out of the plane, out of the ecliptic for the planets. In the case of Voyager two at Neptune, we flew very close to Neptune's moon Triton. And that actually curved Voyager two's trajectory down out of the plane of the planets. So they're now both going their different directions, one north, one south, and uh, making measurements. And so over sort of a, a broad angle. And uh, you know we had certain expectations of what interstellar space might be like and what we might find. And so we've, we found some surprises. And uh, one of those is you know we measure the magnetic field every day when we get data back from Voyager. And we know that prior to crossing the heliopause, of course, the magnetic field direction was controlled by the sun. And so we expected that, you know, sometime after crossing the heliopause, then we'd slowly see that magnetic field direction start to turn into the direction of the interstellar magnetic field. And here it is, you know, we're, we're well outside. We crossed the heliopause with Voyager 1 10 years ago in 2012. And yet the magnetic field is still lined up with the sun in hmm. both cases. So we're wondering, okay, we'll just be patient, wait a little bit longer. We'll see, you know, how far does that influence from the sun extend out into interstellar space? So that, that was a, a surprise. Just hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Just have to be patient. <laughs> also, the plasma density, we expected a certain number for that, and that would maybe start to go down in interstellar space. And on Voyager 1 in particular, recently, it's tended to go up. And it's different than what you had, you would have from missions, say, like IBEX, that tell you what you should expect for the, the density of the, the plasma, the electrons and protons out in interstellar space. And so that hasn't happened yet. And then we see these shocks from the sun. There was some you know, some modeling that thought, well, maybe there could be shocks from the sun, 
that would go on out into interstellar space. And sure enough, we still continue to see them. Uh, what the Voyagers are seeing right now are the solar minimum. So once the activity picks up, it'll take several years to actually reach reach out to where the Voyagers are. We'll see if uh, we again see basically influence uh, coming from the sun. Uh, cosmic rays, you know, their abundance went up. We expected that could actually directly measure it. Uh, so for the first time, we can take our theories and ideas and models and, and actually directly measure uh, these kinds of things. So we have four instruments operating on Voyager 1 and five on Voyager 2. You know, there, there's the magnetometer, the plasma wave experiment, a couple of instruments that measure uh, the high energy particles. And there's another on Voyager 2, there's an additional plasma instrument that makes direct measurements of the plasma. So these instruments are great. It's amazing. In order to get more power, every year we need four watts more power as those radioisotope thermoelectric generators, the plutonium decays. And so we've now turned off the heaters on the particle instruments. They're out on the boom where the scan platform is mm -hmm. halfway out. And so it's the LECP, CRS, and PLS. We turned off their heaters and we didn't know if they'd keep working because we know it would get really cold, much colder than their any of their specs told us uh, they, they should operate. But each one kept operating successfully. Their temperatures dropped 60, wow. 70 degrees you know, centigrade, and they're, they're still working. The little stepper motor in one case is stepping. They had to recalibrate because now the instrument is colder. But with some recalibration, hey, we, we are still in business with all of the instruments. <laughs> That's that's awesome. That's incredible. Um, I, I know Voyager is now part of something called the Heliophysics Systems Observatory. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? I guess that's just maybe just an organization thing. But I mean, NASA does a lot of cool heliophysics stuff right now. So I guess bringing Voyager into the fold seems like a, I guess, like a logical conclusion, right? Right, right. Well, Voyager started out as a planetary science mission, was in the planetary science directorate, and now for NASA has moved over into the the heliosphere, the heliophysics directorate. And so that uh, what you're talking about there is basically a fleet of spacecraft that can measure, you know, heliophysics, geophysics, and planetary science, and they kind of all operate together. Can think of it as you know, sort of taking all of their data together to try and understand the dynamics of the solar system. And so, in the case of Voyager, here's one place where there's some overlap. You know, Voyager is the furthest away of all of these uh, spacecraft or observatories for this program, and is making measurements in interstellar space. But you try and take all of those together, basically, to be better understand our solar system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is. There, there's a few spacecraft that can do this that are that are in this situation, but it's it's a pretty special place to be in where you have that planetary and heliophysics overlap. Um, and I think like I'm sort of learning a lot this year of how these two disciplines are so interconnected. Can you talk a little bit about how learning about heliophysics can help us learn more about planets and vice versa? Yeah, well, if you think about it, a lot of the planets, you know, they have magnetospheres, and the planets interact with the solar wind and with the effects coming from the sun. And so by studying that, that interaction, in some cases it's very complex interaction, uh, that gives us clues about perhaps how those planets formed where they did. You know, we get a measurement of their magnetic field strength and how their magnetic fields behave. Uh, in the case of 
the two outer planets, the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, they had very bizarre magnetic fields tipped over and, and an offset actually. And so that's another very interesting puzzle uh, that Voyager uncovered. And so it's trying to understand how those two work together uh, to understand the, the solar system. That, that solar wind really is helping us provide information about these magnetic fields and magnetospheres around the planets themselves. I, I used to have this sort of mental model of like the solar system being, you know, there was planets and moons and that was like stuff. And then there was empty space and that was not stuff. And what I'm learning a lot of now is that the empty space has a, a lot going on. There's like a lot of stuff happening out there and, and different parts of space has different characteristics. And I, that's like a really bizarre revelation for me, just kind of, you know, the fact that you can measure the space is different when you cross that heliopause, you know, just like, it's just, it's just vacuum, but it's different and you can measure it. And that's like a pretty interesting thing for me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and questions like, what's the shape of our heliosphere? You know, is it sort of cometary with like a tail that goes out behind it? Is it perhaps spherical? Is it perhaps twisted into a croissant or some very interesting shape? There are all <laughs> kinds of competing models out there. And so, they're very interested in the Voyager data, Voyager information, to try and tease out just what the shape of our heliosphere might be. Turns out that you know most stars they have their own heliospheres. We call them astrospheres. And sometimes, if there's a lot of dust around, you know, from various events, we might get an idea of the shape of some of these astrospheres and can make you know measurements about them. And there, you know, we find that more and more stars have planets, and so these astrospheres or heliospheres are so key because they keep out the cosmic rays and they're really key into how the solar systems could form. So Voyager is helping inform about these, what an astrosphere might be look, looking like as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're stuck with that same uh, N equals one sample size problem though there, I guess, right? <laughs> Absolutely, you're, you're right, that is, that is a challenge. <laughs> That seems to bite us in the butt a lot in planetary yeah, science, so yeah. I don't know, uh, or uh, all kind of space sciences. Um, so I want to look a little bit of a bigger picture here because, um, you know, Voyager is unique in that it sort of spans a lot of all of planetary science, basically. Like planetary science is such a new young field, right? Like it's it hasn't been along, around that long, at least not the modern one where we were able to explore things with, you know, spacecraft up front. Um, and, and you also have this perspective because you your career has also spanned most of planetary science. My question is is you know what is interesting about watching the context uh, in which Voyager operates change over the years? I mean, just the, what we know about planets now versus what we did in 1977 is just dramatically different. And yet, this again, the spacecraft is stuck in time, right? And so there's this kind of uh, interesting interplay where it's trying to find its place among the discipline. And I just think that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Right. Well, it is fascinating because when the two Voyagers launched, uh, to me, what's most incredible is, you know, we had one moon, the sample size, N equals one, our moon. And so we're going out to these planets and we're thinking, okay, well, these little moons around these planets probably look a lot like our moon. You know, that's what we expected. And so we get to Jupiter and we see Callisto and Callisto looks battered and cratered and the surface looks old. We're all, check, you know, yeah. looks looks a lot like our moon. It's made of ice, not rock, but hey. Then we get to Ganymede and we're all, hmm, look at this. Something's happened to some of the craters. There's like, looks like tectonic stretching and fractures. 
wow, Ganymede looks really unusual. Then we get to Europa and we go, oh, look at this. The craters are gone. It's bright, white, and icy, which means the surface must be fresh and young. And it has these very interesting, you know, colored fractures. Well, wow, what is going on on Europa? And then, of course, Io. You know, you, you think, can it get any better? You know, we get to this, this moon Io and we, we see it and it kind of looks like, you know, the colors of a pizza. And looking at it, puzzling it, and what I really remember dramatically about Io is how its surface got younger and younger almost day by day as Voyager got closer and closer to Io and also of Europa. Oh, look, no big craters, no medium-sized craters, no little craters. Mm. <laughs> so the surface, something had to resurface and, and change it. Then, of course, for Io, the great story that it was actually in a picture taken from the navigation team, they would overexpose the moons and have stars in the background to get the best trajectory for Voyager. Right. There was this bright feature on the the limb of Io, and it turned out it was a volcano. And there were these volcanoes actively going off as we flew by Io. And so, in a sense, Voyager right away started changing how we thought about moons. You know, and then we discovered that not only did Saturn have rings, but Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune had rings. And then Voyager contributed to that. And, and, and on and on the story goes with the moons of Saturn, you know, Titan. One of Voyager's goals was to try and see through and see the surface of Titan. It's sort of this world enshrouded by a, you know, a photochemical smog, really. Uh, and so we didn't have a chance to see through to the surface of Titan, which then led to the Cassini mission. So, you know, Voyager did leave a little bit, you know, for Cassini to do uh, in the Saturn <laughs> system. But these worlds, which in, in, in the telescopes, especially you get out to Uranus and Neptune, these moons were really just pinpoints of light in a telescope. We could see, you know, as they, if their brightness or, you know, if their albedo changed as it orbited the, the primary world, get out to Neptune, there's Triton with active geysers going off on its surface. And it was almost like, could this really be true? This moon should be frozen solid as far as we know. It's a captured object. We know that Neptune captured it and had it in orbit. And so that basically Voyager really expanded our view of our neighborhood. Our neighborhood got much larger and much richer and much more diverse in just the, the moons and ring systems. And the the planets themselves had their own interesting characteristics from the great red spot on Jupiter, you know, to the, the more muted atmosphere at Saturn, you know, Uranus tipped on its side, and then the, the great dark spot at Neptune. So just so many, you know, an evolution in our thinking. And Voyager also provided us with some important clues about something we call ocean worlds. These are moons in the outer solar system. You know, the moons are mostly water. That's the rock of the outer solar system. And many of these moons have liquid water oceans underneath their icy crusts. That uh, if they're in resonances with the other moons, it just means their orbits are in integer multiples of each other. You can then create slightly eccentric orbits. And that eccentricity provides sort of a squeezing. Imagine squeezing on a ball and that provides the heat. And we think that Europa with its liquid water ocean is a result of resonances there in the Jovian system. Enceladus has a liquid water ocean. So not only did these worlds become, moons become worlds in their own right, uh, they also then perhaps we could have life in our solar system, but in a very different place, perhaps in these liquid water oceans. And so those first 
very key clues uh, came from Voyager. Enceladus, so we found that Enceladus was in the midst of a ring, the E-ring, and we were puzzled what could the source of this ring be. And then Cassini then discovered this all of this material coming out of the South Pole of Enceladus. So really grew our neighborhood. And at the same time, I think uh, Voyager gave us a, maybe a better perspective about ourselves, that we really truly do live on, as Carl Sagan would call it, this pale blue dot, this this tiny world in, in this vastness, vastness of space. And it sort of gave us the, this uh, important perspective uh, and just how maybe how tiny and insignificant we are. And yet we're the only planet we know of in our solar system that has intelligent life, you know, life intelligent enough to build the Voyager spacecraft. Yeah. Hmm. So all those accomplishments listed out there, if you had to, to describe, you know, what is the most important part of Voyager's legacy, you know, very briefly, how would you, how would you make that, uh, <laughs> that judgment? What do you think is the biggest contribution to our understanding? Yeah, I think perhaps one of the most important contributions is about what Voyager showed us about ourselves and in sort of in our place in, in the universe, if you will, and just how, how tiny and how special our world is and uh, that we need to, to take good care of it until we can get out and do more exploration of the solar system. And then, of course, the longevity of Voyager is amazing. I never thought Voyager would outlast Cassini. It just, you know, we thought, okay, Voyager was old in 1989 after the Neptune flyby. We thought, wow, these spacecraft, they are, they are way, way past their warranty, their lifetime you know, expectancy. And now we're even decades past that. And so they're just their longevity and what they're telling us uh, about interstellar space now, that that space between the stars. So, yeah, to pick really one thing, that is really difficult Tough because question. Voyager Voyager has <laughs> been such an epic mission. You know, I could pick my favorite things, but yeah, to pick one thing is, is really, you know, just and that and just changing how we see our neighborhood, our local solar system, our local neighborhood has really evolved and changed. Uh, and Voyager really started that. Yeah, R writing the first chapter in a lot of a lot of otherwise empty books, I guess is well a, put. A yes, that, that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, good way to put it. Um, so, what does the future look like? Um, you know, so is is this sort of a keep collecting data until you die, or is there like you know, is there uh, any kind of new phases of the mission that are that are coming up for for Voyager? What is what do the next few years look like for it? Well, uh, for Voyager, every year we have to find four more watts of power. And so right, we're right. getting more and more creative. You know, we've turned the instrument heaters off. And now we're looking carefully at are there, you know, a lot of the redundant systems, a lot of the computers on Voyager, there were two of each computer. A lot of the redundant systems are now turned off as well. And so we're having to become more creative in exactly how we dig deeper because power really will be the limiting factor uh, for the Voyager spacecraft. But we have some uh, strategies, some very clever strategies that could perhaps get at least two of the instruments, uh, the magnetometer to measure magnetic fields and the plasma wave subsystem. They take the least power. Uh, their electronics are nestled inside Voyager, inside the bus, so it's easier to keep them warm. Uh, keep those going out into the, the 2030s, maybe even out to 200 AU and just continue to uh, collect data and just see if there might be some more unexpected surprises 
along the way with Voyager. And then, of course, you know, once the power runs out and there's just not enough to start to keep sending the signal back to Earth and keep the, the spacecraft going, then the, the two Voyagers will become our, our silent ambassadors. Each of them carry a golden record with the sights and sounds of the Earth. And on the cover is a diagram uh, that tells you how to find us, how to find the Earth, if you want to go back and do that. And so uh, perhaps, say, 40,000 years or so, roughly each of the voyagers will come close, relatively close to a star. You know, if there's anybody out there that's interested in finding the voyagers and uh, getting the gold record and and you know, seeing what's on it, you know, we have a little diagram, you get the first picture, right? It's a circle. So if you can get the circle and you can go on and, and uh, see all the rest of the pictures. It's kind of our, I guess, a message in a bottle that we've thrown out into the sea of space. And, and we'll see if someone finds it and uh, come, stops by to say hello. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Linda, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, your work and all the, the amazing things that uh, you and the Voyager team are doing. It's a super inspiring mission. Um, and, and yeah, I just, uh, I'm just jazzed to have been able to spend some time with you today. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, Jake. And hey, hey, stay tuned. Who knows what we'll find next? <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Linda. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to Linda for recounting some of the stories from Voyager and for continuing to work so hard for it. If you like what I do, please consider becoming a patron. For just $5 a month, you help keep me employed as an independent journalist and help me keep the ads off this show. For your support, you'll get access to the Off Nominal Discord, a place whose use and function are continuously growing and whose membership is rife with really great supporters looking to talk more about space, learn what's up, and engage with it in any way they can. Head over to wemartians.com slash support for more. Have a great week and at Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.